Fly Fishing Internet Radio, your source for learning more about fly fishing in cold water, warm water, and salt water. Hello, I'm Roger Maves, your host for tonight's show. On this broadcast, we'll be featuring Kristen Mustad, and he'll be answering your questions on Nautilus Reels. This show will be 90 minutes in length, and we're broadcasting live over the Internet. If you'd like to ask Kristen a question, just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and use the Q&A text box to send us your question. We'll receive your question immediately, and we'll try to answer as many of them as possible on the show tonight. And while you're there, make sure you sign up to receive our announcements so you don't miss out on any of our future broadcasts. You'll see a form in the right-hand column of our website. Just fill in your name and email address, and we'll keep you informed. This broadcast is being recorded and will be available for playback on our website about 48 hours after the show ends. You can find it also on any of the podcast distribution sites like Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Podbean, BeatSpot, Player FM, or any of the other platforms you might be using. If you do have to leave early, we can, can return to our website or any of those distribution platforms at your convenience and listen to the recording at any time. If you're out and about on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, be sure to, and it would be appreciated if you'd share our podcasts. And when you do, use the hashtag AskAboutFlyFishing, uh, also fly fishing, and also tonight Nautilus Reels. So, um, in fact, if you have a moment, do it right now. There's a couple of links on our homepage where you can do the sharing, and uh, go right ahead and do that. We'd sure appreciate it. The content of this broadcast is copyrighted and is the property of the Knowledge Group Inc. Doing businesses ask about fly fishing. When we return, we'll be talking with Kristen Mustad about Nautilus Reels. Douglas Outdoors is a manufacturer of premium quality fly rods, raising the expectations that anglers should expect in componentry, design, engineering, craftsmanship, and in turn performance. Led by rod designer Fred Kantui, Douglas has achieved award-winning rods featuring eye-opening strength to weight ratios and dialed-in techniques-specific actions and papers that cater to a host of different species. Douglas Outdoors has a truly deep lineup of rods, ranging from 12 weights, monster tarpon, to two weights for tiny brook trout and everything in between. Check them out at douglasoutdoors.com. Again, it's douglasoutdoors.com. Before we introduce Kristen, I'd like to let you know about the great prizes we have to give away tonight. On our drawing tonight, we'll be giving away a membership to uh, Fly Fishers International and a one-year subscription to Fly Fishing and Tying Journal. So you have two chances to win tonight in our drawing. Now, if you haven't registered yet for the drawing, you can do so now. Just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and look for the link under Kristen's section that says click here to register for our drawing. Click on that link and fill out the form, and we'll announce the winners at the end of the show. We'll also be giving away a $25 gift certificate to Front Range Anglers in Boulder, Colorado. And to find out more about Front Range Anglers, go to frontrangeanglers.com. And here's how you can win that gift certificate. You'll have to be the first person to answer the question or questions I ask at the end of the show. And the questions will be about something that Kristen and I talk about during the show. So you must submit your answer along with your name and your location in that text box on our homepage. So listen closely and use your best typing skills, take some great notes, and maybe you'll win that $25 gift certificate from Front Range Anglers in Boulder, Colorado. And you can redeem that in, in the store or online. Either way uh, is fine. Our guest tonight is Kristen Mustad. Kristen is the founder of Nautilus Reels, the leading manufacturer of fly fishing reels. And Nautilus Reels was founded in 2003 with a vision to make the finest fly fishing reel in the market. Uh, under Kristen's leadership, Nautilus has won over a dozen industry awards for best fly fishing reel, and the company keeps raising the bar on fly reel performance. Kristen, welcome to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. 
Thank you for having me. Great to yeah, be well, here. Long-time running show and uh, proud to be here. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. Well, you'll be part of uh, many of the fine people we've had on the show. And uh, uh, it's been quite a list now of over 200 guests I've had over the, on the show and over 315 shows. So it's quite the archive now, a great, wow. great library of information on fly fishing. So pretty proud of it. So thanks. Um, so we got a lot of questions tonight. Um, and, you know, the whole goal here tonight is to learn who Nautilus Reels are, who the person was behind it and that got this whole thing started, and, and where you might, uh, what kind of ride you might be taking us on in the future. So we'll try to work through that as a goal and uh, see where we land. So first of all, Kristen, you know, Mustad, yep. name associated with fishing for generations. Uh, I mean, I remember the name when I was a kid. Uh, put those hooks on my my spinning gear. So, um, you know, a proud Norwegian family. And so are you part of that family tree? Yeah, so the last uh, family member that uh, was an owner in Mustad was uh, a cousin of mine called Hans. And he sold it, I'd say, eight or ten years ago uh, to a venture capital group. And it's been sold one or two times since then again. Uh, he stayed on with a long line uh, so the commercial fishing aspect of it, not the sport hooks that are also used for commercial fishing, but just a long line industry. But, uh, yeah, so that's uh, business started in, I think it was 18, 1812, making fasteners and zippers and nails, screws. And then I think in 1857, they started making the fish hooks. So it's... Uh, there's a long history there, and we grew up fishing. So, uh, yeah, that's that's my relationship right there. Like I always used to say, is when when my cousin Hans used to own it, I would always say, yes, I'm related, but not affiliated, which means I didn't get a check. So, <laughs> you didn't get a check. <laughs> Too far down the family tree at this point, I guess. Just a little bit. Uh, yeah. 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 So the family is pretty much out of it now. Uh, so. Completely out of it. Yeah, they were. Yeah, they were sole owners up until he sold it. Oh wow! All those years. Yeah. My gosh. I think it's it's nine generations. Wow, that's incredible. What uh, yeah. what influence did your family have on your love of fishing? I grew up. I remember my mother telling us stories about us fishing uh, in the flower bed, um, just with rods or sticks and a little line going through flower bed, and we'd tie flowers on it to catch bees, and that was our fishing. Uh, but <laughs> we grew up, I think my, uh, I remember my mom woke me up one time. It was about a mile ride down to the lake from our house, and I asked her for the alarm clock in the evening, and she said, what do you want the alarm clock for? Oh, because i got to wake up at 4, because Tobias and I, my neighbor, we're going to go fish at the lake really early because there's a couple of carp that come in early. And she said, no, you're not. And so I didn't sleep all night, got up at 4, went down to get my bike because I couldn't fail my buddy Tobias. And as I was sneaking out, my mom peeked up from the balcony and said, what are you doing? I said, no, I'm just heading over to Tobias' house to tell him we're not going. <laughs> so I went over there. He was asleep and went back to bed. But uh, always been a passion of mine, always. And I started, I think, fly fishing. I remember my first fly fishing, was, I was probably five or six and it was rowing a boat, 
and just trolling a fly rod with a sinking line behind it. Mm. I remember it was orange fiberglass rods. So that, it was a good time, fishing for trout. And this was, um, was this in Norway? In Norway. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so that's where you grew up? And, yeah. That's where I was born. I didn't grow up there. My dad was a consultant, and we oh. traveled a lot. I lived in six different countries before I went off to college in the States. Oh, okay. And what did you yeah. go to college for? What was your major? So I studied tropical agriculture at Cornell. Tropical agriculture. How about that? Yeah, you're a long ways away from that now, aren't you? Just a yeah. little bit. It's tropical down here, so. Yeah. <laughs> and I like the garden. You still like the garden in your own yard, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. Uh, I'm sure that, that education pays off. Well, a lot of us don't end up where we started, but uh, uh, but that's fine. That's, you know, my, my dad gave me a sage piece of advice, which was study what you enjoy and, you know, put in the biggest effort you can. And he goes, but start at the bottom when you leave college. He goes, if you don't know how to shovel manure, you will never be able to tell a guy how to shovel manure. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And yeah. uh, he said, no matter what path you take, if you work your way up in management, you can always move into something else because the challenge in running a business is mostly managing people. Yeah. And I think that's pretty mm-hmm. much right. I'm sure that's what you struggle with the most, and that's what I struggle with the most for sure. I think any everybody in business, uh, yep. employees and, and partners, can be a blessing or a curse. Yep. <laughs> and you got to sort that out as quickly as possible. Yes, sir. Uh, so, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, since you started fishing, is there a particular species of fish that that you love to go after most nowadays? My biggest passion is trout, brown trout specifically. Really? Huh. I thought it was a saltwater fish, but uh, trout. So in saltwater, it's the bonefish. But uh, if if I can, I go fish for trout. And actually for the last three years, except for this year, of course, with the COVID deal going on, I didn't go. But for the last three years, uh, I've been going to Iceland with a group of friends. It's been tremendous. Lake fishing, oh, yeah. which is probably the most boring fishing, but it's big, big brown trout, and they're just beautiful animals. I admire them. Always had a passion for them. Yeah, yeah, interesting. Yeah, they're yeah. such beautiful fish. Such beautiful. Fish. I love them. Yeah. And um, the way they kind of uh, sulk and hunker down, and <laughs> you gotta dig That's them it. out. That's it. That's <laughs> it. it. You know, when I fish in a river where there's when I, when I'm targeting browns and I catch a rainbow. I get so upset at these bouncy little rainbows jumping up and down. I'm like, come on, give me something that's <laughs> going to take me down. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But I don't complain that's about right. rainbows. Okay, yeah. If if they're there, they're there, right? You'll, you'll bring them in. It's um, so fun. Yeah, oh, it's always fun. Yeah, even uh, I was fishing uh, the day before yesterday up here in Colorado. And, yeah. Uh, beautiful area on this private ranch up here and uh, it was all rainbows but there's some big rainbows in there yeah <laughs> and, no, uh, really. you know it's uh, and when you're in a beautiful setting you know uh like i don't know somebody's always said you know there's uh, trout don't live in ugly places or something like that so yeah yeah it's always good hey uh we got a question from scott head in nicaragua and uh he says yeah. you, pers- you personally and nautilus as a company have been extremely supportive of conservation efforts such as the battle to stop 
proposed pebble mine in Alaska and captains for clean water in Florida. And he said, are, are there any special places that especially inspire you? Have you ever fished in Alaska, or is that too cold for a South Florida guy? I have fished in Alaska. I went one time. I took my son. Uh, he was, I'd say, gosh, he must have been 12 or 13. And we went up to a cousin of mine's lodge, who was actually the one that I fished with through my whole childhood. And he ended up studying wildlife management uh, in Fairbanks and stayed there forever. And he bought himself a fishing lodge up there and, and, uh, or built himself a fishing lodge and runs an operation up there. And we went to visit him one summer. And I remember my son was all upset about uh, making sure that he, he was telling me that he was not going to fly fish because he didn't <laughs> like fly fishing. He liked fishing with a spinning rod, as kids are. <laughs> Because what dad does is not cool. And so when we got there, he said, hey, put on a, a dad, I'm, I'm going to borrow one of Uncle Henrik's fishing rods. And I said, sure, you know, ask Uncle Henrik, and you can go down to the river and catch yourself a salmon. And off he took, and he went down to the river and came back five minutes later and said, hey, dad, everybody down here is not using spoons or spinners. They're, they're putting... Dalai Lamas on flies on, on their spinning rods and throwing them out there. So you're going to borrow one of your, your flies. I said, sure, here's the fly. And then 10 minutes later, he came back again and said, Dad, can I borrow one of your fly rods? And he didn't let go of the fly rod for the whole week. I mean, it was great. I loved it up there. It's amazing. It's wild. Uh, it's beautiful. Yeah. But I'll tell you, I'll tell you back, to, back to trout, I'll tell you what I like most about trout. And it's that you can go to the wildest place. And I've been to places where the fish see a fly maybe once or twice in their lifetime. And you can go there, and I've fished there with, you know, indicator flies. I mean, you try to throw out the weirdest stuff you can, and you're just amazed that they're taking them, right? But then suddenly everything shuts down, and you start changing flies and changing flies and changing flies and going to your go-to little pattern and nothing's working, and then suddenly you see that there's a caddis hatch, and you put on a caddis, and it won't work, and you put a smaller caddis that looks more like the size, and suddenly you're catching these fish. And that's what amazes me most, because I associate the fish going off of, you know, not taking your fly because they've seen too many, but the reality is even the wildest fish, they key in, and you can float a grasshopper past them, which they would never let pass by, if they were sane, but they're locked in on little emerging caddis, and that's what they're going to feed on. It's amazing. That's what amazes me about trout. Yeah, yeah. Unpredictable. Predictable, but yeah. unpredictable, you know? I exactly. Mean, yeah, yeah. No, and then you this find one you... the one that works, and and you're like, okay, I got it, and you won't catch another. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, uh, I grew up in Anchorage, Alaska, and uh, that's where I learned to fish with my dad. Really? Uh, we went... We went back there on 2006, my dad and I and, and my son, who was about yep. 14 at the time, and we flew in the Togiak River, and it was the best best time and the best memories I'll ever have with uh, the two it's of them. It's great. So, uh, Alaska always creates great memories like yours with your son as yep. well. So, yeah, yeah, great place to be. So and the one you, thing are you talking about following the whole Pebble Mine thing? Yeah, yeah, well, I... Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's and, a sorry um, thing, man. 
It's very sorry, I think. And uh, yeah, yeah, I do a, a, a public service announcement at the end of the show for that as well because I want to keep people. Great. That yeah. You know, but, you, uh, you know I, 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 uh, I'll yeah, tell you that yeah. what, what amazes me most about that, and I don't want to get sidetracked here, but it's I'm passionate about this, and you asked about it, right? And, and okay. Pebble Mine or the fishery there employs fourteen thousand people, and Pebble Mine is being sought to be developed by a Canadian company, of all things, and a company that's not even a mining company yet. It's a group of people that want to get the rights to the mine, and they're probably just going to flip it to some big mine. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it, it runs a chance of uh, turning a, a salmon species into an extinct one. And, yeah. and that's what amazes me. It's like, how does this government allow this to go even move forward when, and at the end of it all, even the most basic thought is, this is going to a foreign company. That's yeah, not, not even a mining company. Yeah. 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 yeah, it kind of hit home for me um, really strongly because my dad, again, and my son, we went up north in Manitoba to Lake Kisissing up there to go yeah. for, uh, pike fishing. And, um, and our guide said one evening, you know, of course it was staying light late up there, and after dinner he says, I want to show you guys something. So we got in his truck and we drove off, and uh, he showed us this area that had been uh, mined, and I can't remember yeah. what they were mining, but there was a lake there. The lake was brown. There was probably about 20 acres around the lake where not even yeah. a weed was growing, not one single weed. And yeah. uh, and he says this is the result of mining when they don't clean up. Uh, yeah, and he and says they, they tried to clean up, but it was, you know, they, it was uh, ridiculously. It's much it's it. much cheaper to pay the fine. Yeah, yeah. And so when I heard about the pebble mine, I was like, oh my gosh, you know, this is yeah. going to happen up there as well, only on a bigger, you know, bigger scale as well. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, so a species and fourteen thousand jobs. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. crazy. It's crazy. Well, uh, listen, I got to take a quick break here, Kristen, and when we come back, yeah. we'll be talking about your business. So uh, hang tight, everybody, and um, we'll be right back. Thank you. Baja Fly Fishing Company is dedicated to fulfilling your vacation dreams, and just so there's no mistake, they derive as much pleasure helping a novice improve as they do fishing with a pro. From the casual to the hardcore, they can match your expectations with their experience in coaching. A vacation with Baja Fly Fishing is more than a fishing trip. It's a full-on Baja experience that you will remember forever. They know the Baja after 40 years of traveling its back roads, kayaking its shoreline, surfing and snorkeling while pioneering the fly fishing techniques that have evolved into the tactics used today. They are well-versed in fly fishing the beach and kayaks on pongas and are well-versed in all tackle types. Join them in pursuit of roosterfish, dorado, marlin, sailfish, wahoo, jack creval, yellowfin, skipjack, and many other species. Learn more about Baja Fly Fishing Company by visiting their website at BajaFlyFish.com. Again, that's BajaFlyFish.com. You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. We're talking with Kristen Mustad about Nautilus Reels. If you'd like to ask Kristen a question, just go to our homepage at AskAboutFlyFishing.com and use the Q&A text box there to send us your question. And we'll try to answer as many of them as possible on the show tonight. So, um... Let's talk a little bit about uh, business. Um, Kristen, were you involved in other businesses before Nautilus? 
fly fishing yeah, or otherwise? I mean, or? Yeah, so straight out of college, I, I worked in agriculture in the tropics for quite a while. Oh. And then I moved on to uh, technology, and, uh, and then I did my master's degree. And after that, I moved down to Florida and, and uh, started my own business. It was a technology distribution uh, company. So what I would do is I would source technology from Scandinavia principally and take it to Latin America. And then that evolved into Latin America and the U.S. And technology was anything from software uh, code, which is, I mean, pretty much software, but just pieces, very small pieces of a software that would, like, accelerate uh, the dialing through at a cell phone company, for example, that kind of stuff that, that was developed by some Finnish company and they wanted to implement it in Latin America or in the U.S. And so that's what I did. And, um, and then how did you get from there to owning a fly fishing reel company? So we talked about people earlier. So I partnered with a group of investors, and that wasn't a, a good partnership. And so I sold them my share of the company when I got tired. That was in 19, in 2000, and, late 2002. No, early 2003. It was January. And, uh, well, I sold it, and then I stayed on till January. So I sold it in late, so six months before January. That would be like August, you know, too. In uh, January, on my, in my last week, on Monday, one of the guys that at that point was my boss because I was working for them said, hey, do you see that dolphin they caught? in the Miami Herald. And I said, man, are you kidding me? The dolphin made it to the Miami Herald? And he goes, no, man, in the sport fishing section. I said, there's no sport fishing section in the Miami Herald. And he said, yeah, every Thursday, sports has one page for fishing. And I said, really? So yeah, I look forward to Thursday. Friday was my last day, and Thursday, I opened up the paper, and there was an article on a flywheel manufacturer out of Florida, and I'd never heard of them. It was old Florida, old Florida fly reels. And I read the article, and I don't know if they had a bad day on the water or what it was, but it, it what came to me was that this sounds like the guy that's running it is tired. So I quickly uh, sent out an email. So this is Thursday before Friday, my last day, in January or February sometime. And... Um, I got a call back within 10 minutes and had a meeting set up for the following Monday to go inspect the factory. And so I walked into this real factory and thought it was fascinating. It was a tiny, it was two tiny bays that, that had a hole cut in the drywall between the two bays with a tarp as a curtain between the two. And one side had a, like a storage area and a little assembly uh, area and, and uh, one office and a front office, and then the other side had four CNC machine and a polishing machine. And I walked in there, and we, we struck a deal, and we were partners for a year, and then I bought them out a year after. But the first year, I, so I came in with my, my younger brother, 
and I remember we bought this in May, and in July we said, okay, we've got a choice to make here. We can either shut this down because nothing we'd seen was what the audit revealed. And so we said, okay, we can either shut this down and walk away and find something else to do, or we need to just reinvent this company. And so this was in June or July, and between July and September, I think it was September 10th, the Fly Fishing Show was in Denver, right? Uh, we uh, yeah, we set up uh, a whole line of reels. So we made a, the Nautilus CCF-8, uh, the 10 and the 12, and launched it at that show with probably seven guys looking at us because we were in a tiny little booth at the, in one corner. But that's, that's what it was. It was either reinvent it completely or just shut it down and walk away. But I'll tell you a funny one. So back in college, and because you've been on the air so long, a lot of people will remember Kaufman Streamborn. Mm -hmm. So in college at Cornell, I would buy my fly tying stuff and my gear from uh, Jerry Swanson at Kaufman Streamborn in Portland, Oregon. It was, you know, I think definitely the biggest fly shop in the world at the time. Phenomenal catalog. Every fly had a description of where you have to have this fly and what, what to use it on. It was amazing. But so I called him and I said, hey, Jerry, because we kept in touch over the years because I'd always buy all my fly fishing gear from them from the catalog. And so I called up Jerry and said, hey, Jerry. And he reminded me of this, by the way, like a week ago. I said, hey, Jerry, uh, I'm thinking about buying this fly reel company called Old Florida Fly Reels. Do you know him? And he said, I don't know him, but my advice to you is, I don't know how much it costs, but take that money and go fishing, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> he reminded you, me of that the other day. Yeah, yeah. So so you weren't really looking to get into the fly fishing business when you, when you uh, so, so, no. it up on so the... I'll t no. Not at all. It was a newspaper article that presented an opportunity on my second to last day at work where I was starting to stress out as to what am I going to do now. And there it was. There yeah. it was. But my now whole life, you... I've always wanted to be involved in something fishing or something hunting or something outdoors, always. Now, you didn't have any um, background in machining or manufacturing at that point, really, either? No clue. And let me tell you something, I still consider that I don't, because I go out there and look at these machines and the numbers go up and down and they're doing this and I'm like, oh my gosh. <laughs> but well, what I do have is, you know, it, I'll tell you what, it's not really hard. Um, the fly, I'll tell you, for, for the first time manufacturing entrepreneur, this was a relatively easy industry to come into. I came in at a time when there was a new reel from every manufacturer every five or six years. There was a new rod every five or six years. And I said to myself, I said, man, people are buying a new car every three years. You know, 30,000 bucks every three years, but they'll sit on a $500 fly reel for 20 
and not change it? What's going on with this? So sort of made it a mission to, to so, well, we actually did make it a mission to have a new reel every year just to, one, make press. I mean, we nobody would write about a little startup fly reel company, you know, so we had to get make new product and email blast everybody because we didn't even have money to, to, to do a, a press package with a CD with pictures back in the days and, and a write-up and a nice little catalog and stuff. There wasn't the budget for that. So it was just email blasts to every editor in the industry, and and it happened. You know, we got written up here and there, and I think our big break was when we landed Kaufman's at the show. They came over as a courtesy, really, and then they saw the product, and they were like, oh, that's pretty cool, actually. Yeah, yeah. Now, when you said you were, you know, when you uh, were at that point of closing down or reinventing, what was the big problem? Was it marketing? Was it the quality of the reels? What what was so 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 one thing I used to call the old Florida. I used to call it the poor man's Abel because it was a two hundred dollar reel that was just as good as an Abel or a Tibor. And the problem was it was two hundred bucks, and you couldn't make them for what you sold them for to the dealers. Mm. Yeah. So, so, so the you're math didn't money. work out. Yeah, the math, the math did not work out. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. And so, what were the what were the first? You know, when you started to to reinvent, I assume you had to relook at the designs and manufacturing. What what were the changes that you made at that point? So first, it was is or in parallel, we had to come up with a name and a logo uh, and and a product, right? And the product was, uh, the guy I bought it from said he had this brand new design. He called it the revolution that was sealed and this and that. And it wasn't sealed. And he, he only needed to figure out how to attach the spool. And that's what got me thinking. I said, man, I used to go fishing, and we all used to go fishing, with a reel that fit in your pocket and two or three spools. You had a sink tip line, you had a fast sink tip maybe, and a full sink, and a floating line. And you never knew what you were going to be fishing, so you had to have it all, right? I don't know if you can still buy a sink tip line, by the way. I love sink tips. But uh, so the whole deal was, is like, why is there no saltwater reel where you can pop off a spool and put it back on? And yes, there were. There was a Ross big game, I think. And that's, we had to move so fast that I looked around and I said, okay, the number one's got to be Ross. And the big game reel is priced at 400 so that's going to be my sales price. So I need to wholesale it for this amount, and I need to be able to make this much money, and I need my cost to be that. And based on that cost, we developed the CCF reel. Well, actually, yeah. It was the CC, no, it was just a cork reel in the early days. And it was pretty cool because it was a free-floating washer of cork, which was not sealed but sort of sealed. It was captured like many call their reels. And what would happen is when you tighten the drag, the cork would compress and it would blow the grease out to the sides, but when you loosened it, it would come back on. So it was always self-lubricating, right? It didn't really work well, so we had to come up with something else. 
And then we moved on to, we said, okay, what can we do now? You know, so hold on, let me go back here before I move on to the drag system. Popping off the spool, how do we do that? So I took one of my old ables and I said, okay, when I take the drag knob off my able, if I'm not careful, that drag shaft falls right out the front, followed by the spring washer, and my trip is shot. So I need to be able to capture that. And so I just figured out that if I just cut out the bearings and incorporate that in a little hub, and I just put an attachment mechanism at the top, I can just pop a spool onto it, and it's still a drawbar type reel, and I'll seal it from the back. So that's what we did with the cork in it. And we figured out a seal for it that we later improved on. Um, but the real breakthrough for us was when we came out with the cork and carbon fiber. I was sort of fed up with cork for big game. Anybody that went big game fly fishing used the cork drag. It was uh, what was used in the old Fenors. In the big game reels, those conventional reels, they used cork. And the reason was it came from the auto industry. And they used it in the car clutches. But years ago, they stopped doing that. But you have to remember, these guys started making these big game reels, Seamaster, uh, all these guys started back in the 50s when that when cork was used in, in cars, in clutches. So I said, man, people are still stuck on this idea that cork is the only thing because it's got compression and all this stuff. And the, the startup inertia is horrible. And there were several real manufacturers out there that were using carbon fiber. Sage was using it at the time. Um, and Jack Charlton was the first one. He actually designed the Sage drag. Jack Charlton from Charlton Reels, later founded Mako Reels. We actually had long talks about this together because the biggest issue he had was that his drag, if you put it under a lot of stress, the carbon fiber friction would create a lot of heat, which expanded the drag plate, uh, which in a stack design, like in, on a Sage or a Hatch Reel or any reel that has set layers, you've got multiple layers of steel or aluminum that are the friction plates. They warm up, they expand, your pressure goes up, the heat builds up, and you end up getting a change in drag. Effectively, it doesn't really matter. In a fishing situation, it's rare unless you get a bluefin that runs forever. But in a lab, if you test it, you're like, man, this will never work. And we figured out how to dissipate that heel by a, that heat by attaching the spool right onto that top of that brake cover that was all, generating all the heat, and the spool acted like a heat sink. There's actually a video of it on our, on our website. But that was, the big innovation was, okay, we want carbon fiber, but the big game fishermen won't use it. What can we put in there to get them to use it? And we said cork. And we'll say the cork insulates the drag plate, which it does, but the, the resin we bake on does the same. But we said, if it's got cork, I think we have a chance of convincing the big game guys to use it. And it worked. And they bought it, huh? <laughs> they bought it. At yeah. the end of the I story, mean, it, yeah. It, 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 yeah, and, and as, a, as a breaking surface, it's pathetic. It's got, when it's freshly lubed, cork will have a 7% startup inertia, which means 
let's say you're fishing four pound tippet and your drag is at one pound. Your, your startup uh, drag, to get that drag moving, it's at 1.1. And then you tighten the drag and you're at two and the fish stops and it goes again. Now you're at 2.2. Man, if that tippet is chafed, you're in trouble, right? Mm-hmm. And, and yep. carbon fiber will get you down below 1% any day. Do you think that's one of your biggest breakthroughs in real design? Yeah, and then and then I think that, I mean, doing the the red break, we were the first ones to put a red break on it. And it's not the break. It's the seal. It's the back plate, we call it. It's what sealed it all up in the back. We made it red. It's hard to find a reel that doesn't have a red drag nowadays. And we called, we actually marketed it like the Brembo breaks of fly fishing. And I think it was, I think, you know, our big breakthrough was one, visually and functionally. We were designing sizes that weren't common. We were making our reels a little bit bigger. And we didn't invent the large arbor reels. We just marketed everybody into understanding why large is better. And it took us years. But I tell you, I'm selling, you know, four-and-a-half-inch reels for eight weight rods and if you go back 15 years the biggest 12 weight reel is four inches that's a big deal i mean that's what our six seven is nowadays yeah yeah and it was four inches and it weighed 17 or 18 ounces and our five inch reel weighs 10 that's where you know, I, I think that's, if I could pat myself on the back, it's two things, really. I'm, I'm going away from, from the product now. But one is getting people to fish bigger reels. and But the second one is understanding early on that the kids, the ones with the flat bills, are buying <laughs> reels like crazy. With <laughs> the flat bills. I mean, I tell you. Gone are the curved bills, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, what's amazing is, is, is that these kids, skateboarders, fly fishing was never cool. Now it's a cool thing. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and I remember having arguments with big, you know, owners of big fly shops. Tell them, you need to cater to these kids. And like, they don't have any money. I said, they've got $800 Androids in their pocket. And when a new one comes out, it's in their pocket. They will max yeah. out the credit card and then make room for it, and then they'll buy another one later. Yeah. And we yeah. saw it. And I tried to get it down to the fly shops. And, I mean, look at the look at the young fishing guides coming in. They're skateboarders. They look like what I grew up as, as seeing skateboarders, right? Yeah. But yeah. it's the young crowd. They're fanatics, and they want top-end gear. Gear, yeah, gearheads, right? Yeah. Uh, whether it's whether it's electronics, uh, boards, or rods, you yep. know, or reels, yep. it's uh, gear, yeah. Yeah, yep. and they want and, the uh, best. Yeah, yeah. The um, dialing back a little bit here, when yeah. you, when you first launched Nautilus, how many reels did you have to sell when you went to those first shows? Did you just have how one reel? How many models? Or? Yeah. Uh, so we had the CCF, 
and it was an 8, a 10, and a 12. So it was three reels. It was a four-inch reel, reel. Okay. A, a, a four-and-a-quarter-inch, uh, 10. No, it was a four-and-a-quarter-inch 12, a four-inch 10, and a three-and-three-quarter-inch 8. A big reel. That's what it was. Yeah, but the design was cool. We have the Nautilus shell cut out on the back of the frame. Mm -hmm. The logo turned out really well. It was circular. You could turn the drag knob. It was visible everywhere. Yeah. The front of the reel had the logo. The back of the reel had the logo. The reel foot had the name. The frame had the name. It was everywhere. It was all about getting the brand out there. And, and, and it really turned when we had the red drag because people noticed that. Is that, uh, would you consider that a differentiator back in those beginning days, the design, the look and feel to, to grab Big attention? time, because it was so different from everybody else. It was really, really, I mean, it was just totally different. Nobody, and nobody had a pop-off spool on a saltwater reel. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that was innovative at that point, okay. Really big, and... I mean, years later, I remember Tibor came out with it, and then Abel came out with it, and uh, now I think most saltwater reels have removable spools. Mm -hmm. Yeah, of course, yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, if you were to advise, you know, you were just talking about all the young people out there that are uh, yep. that are in the marketplace now, and whether they're users or you know guides or, or whatever, or owners of companies, what would you do differently to get a foothold in the marketplace? What would you advise them to do today that maybe you didn't do or couldn't do back in your days uh, starting up? Start with more money. <laughs> <That's> all. <laughs> yeah. No, I think, it's, I, I think it's, so I'll tell you what, there have been a couple of moments where I got bored maybe or frustrated really. But if you do what you enjoy, uh, you will succeed. And it sort of goes along with what my dad told me. Study what you like. Study what interests you and work in that field. Work your way up and then you can pretty much do anything. And so as long as you enjoy what you're doing, if you don't enjoy I don't know, accounting, uh, because you got tired of it while you were studying, but you got an accounting degree, and now you're working for a big accounting firm, and you're making huge money, at some point you're going to burn out. But when you have something like me, where I had fly fishing, and believe me, it wasn't easy. I went through times, I mean, tough times, where... I remember one time, and I tell my kids this the whole time, I said, you know, when we were starting out, I remember going to the the janitor in the condo building I was living in, and I gave him 20 bucks to pull the plug that the power company had put between the electrodes in the electrical room to cut off my power because I didn't have 95 bucks to pay for the electrical bill. So that sort of... You know, that's what I'm saying. Start with more money because it makes it a little bit easier, but it's also easier to spend it if you have it, right? Well, that's but it. I think sometimes not, not having it makes you more uh, yes. innovative yes. and, uh, yeah. you know, and 
you, the, the struggle makes you think more and find different ways, yeah. and sometimes that's a, a different journey. But, but uh, yeah, but but even in those you know depressive moments, really, I still enjoyed going to work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because yeah. it was fun. You're making, and, and I'll tell you one thing: it's making something, something that you can physically hold. Coming from technology, you know, I went from agriculture, where you look in at crops growing, producing, you see a yellow spot and you go figure out what's wrong with it and you fix it. It's all satisfying stuff. And then I go to technology where I'm sending little lines of code where I'm making good money, but it's not tangible, right? And it's not my passion. I get it. Some people, you know, they really enjoy seeing that. They're seeing a line of code fly through or bits go through a system fast and they get excited. I get it. Yeah, yeah. Not me, yeah. but being able to go out there and, 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 you know, sit out there at 9 p.m. polishing a reel with a newborn son at home, and I'm still polishing because i got to get product to the anodizer the next day. It, it never, it, it was never tiring. Yeah, yeah. Well, before we take our next break, I want to hit you with one more question, and then when we come yep. back, I want to talk specifically about the different models of reels. And, uh, and so okay. that you have. Um, but, um, you know, nowadays there's kind of a whole thing going on in the industry on selling, you know, through dealers versus selling direct or doing both. And I just want to know, you're still selling through dealers only, right? And I just only, wanted to get yes. your your thoughts on that in the industry. So we, the sell, we, yeah, so we sell to specialty fly shops, no chains. Uh, I mean, there's some that have multiple stores, but they're all you know, specialty fly shops. And like we don't do Bass Pro Cabela's. Okay. Uh, but we only do shops and through those shops' websites. Okay? I get big online-only dealers calling me you know, on a monthly basis going, hey, we want your product. We want to sell it. And I turn them down. Amazon has come to us and said, hey, we'd like to stock your product and sell it. And I turn them down. And I believe I came to the point where I'm at. I was able to make this business happen. I was able to create a superior product because I had the support of loyal fly shops that in the beginning were very, very few but have grown into Still fewer than most other manufacturers, but great fly shop. I really think that we probably sell more reels per fly shop that we per account than most other manufacturers. And it's by choice. We're protecting dealers. The fly shop, I mean, I just think about me in college. I would call Jerry Swanson or Kaufman's, order flies, talk to him for hours about fishing. I'm going you know, up to Pulaska, New York, what do you know? And he goes, man, that's not steelheading, but let me make a call, and I'm going to find out for you. And I'd get a call back the next day when long distance was a thing, right? And you'd pay for that. He would call me back and tell me to go to this fly shop, talk to that guy in the fly shop, and he's going to put me on the river with the right set of flies and blah, blah, blah. And it's just... That's the way it worked. You know, th- those are the people that introduced the most 
to fly fishing. Yeah, right now, everybody's going on Amazon. They might buy a rod and a reel on there and run out to the river and get frustrated and walk away from it. You go to a fly shop, that guy's going to take you out to the parking lot. You buy a rod and a reel, and he might tell you, hey, man, come back on Saturday. You know, after 4, it gets slow. I'll take you down to the stream, and we, I'll, I'll show you how to cast and what to look for and stuff like that. That's fly shops. They help me grow. And it's, it's, today, it's the hand that feeds me. And I really don't want to change that because I believe no. if we all go direct to consumer or we go to these dot-com powerhouses, and, I mean, you could tell me right away, if I was going to sell to a guy that has a website, why don't I just invest in that and do it myself instead of giving mm-hmm. him a cut, right? Right, right. And so we're supporting the fly shops because they're the ones that are bringing new people into the industry, and they're helping them stay in it. Yeah, yeah. Good. Okay. Good thoughts, good thoughts. Okay, we need to take a quick break again, and but when we come back, we're going to talk about the five models of reels that, that you have over there, Kristen, and you can tell us all about them because uh, I know I'd like to learn, and so, so does everybody else. So we'll be right back. Watermaster is dedicated to providing their customers with the highest quality inflatables on the market as well as an unbeatable customer service and product support. They are best known for their signature products, the Watermaster Grizzly and Kodiak rafts. These rafts are lightweight, compact, durable, versatile, and safe. The Watermaster rafts are everything your personal watercraft should be. They've been used by anglers and hunters all over the world for over 15 years, including Dave Whitlock, one of fly fishing's greatest innovators. Dave said, with my Watermaster, I can enjoy more fishing per hour than any other method I have ever tried. After two and a half years of testing 15 models of kickboats, I'm convinced that the Watermaster is the ultimate personal flotation craft for warm and cold water fly fishing. Visit Watermaster today and take a look at the ultimate personal flotation craft. Go to BigSkyInflatables.com. That's BigSkyInflatables.com. You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio, and we're talking with Kristen Mustad about Nautilus Reels. If you'd like to ask Kristen a question, just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and use that Q&A text box to send us your question. So, Kristen, you have now five models that you're currently selling, X-Series, CCF, X2, NVG, NVSpay, and GTX. Can you walk us through each reel in the order that they came on the market and tell us why they were brought to the market, and what makes them different from the other reels? Yes. So we started with the CCF, like I said, which went from cork to cork and carbon fiber, the the Nautilus. And then we put carbon fiber in. We called it the CCF because it was cork and carbon fiber. And then that model stayed on for many years, very successfully, with different, you know, sizes introduced over time. And we decided we wanted to do a higher end where we could use premium components. And I remember, this was, I think it was the last year my brother was with me before he went off and did something else. And he said, hey, let's add titanium to this reel. That was the NV. And I said, titanium? And he said, yeah, let's do a titanium component in this reel, a spool shaft or a drag shaft. It's lighter. It might not make a significant difference, but from the marketing standpoint, it will. 
and we need to bring that out. And by this time, we had already come out from flying under the radar to being visible because we'd taken market share from some of the big guys. And I remember we showed up at the show, and we had titanium, and we had um, ceramic hybrid bearings, which is a stainless steel uh, walled bearing with ceramic balls, and showed up at the trade show, and that year Ross introduced a reel that had a pin that held down the drag system that was made of titanium. So it was a pretty smart move. But so what the NV was, an upgrade. What we learned on the CCF, we wanted to make a lighter reel. The CCF 8 weighed 8 ounces. And we made the NV 8.9, which was a 4-inch model. So we went up a size, up a quarter inch. And it was lighter than the CCF 8. And we had learned where to cut material, how to cut the spools to make them lighter. And another innovative thing we did was put little holes in the bottom of the arbor. We had four little holes to drain water out of it to help the backing dry better. And also the backing the bottom of the backing showed through those little holes at the bottom, which was really cool. That was the NV. That reel turned into the NVG, which was a giga spool that Jesus, who on Instagram is uh, Real Jesus, uh, Jesus came up with this design and it's been phenomenal. It's still on our current NVG. So NVG is for gigaspool. Um, it just improved on the NV, and we went up in size again by a quarter inch on it. But so in today's lineup, we have uh, the NVG, which is the oldest one in there. It's been around for 15 years. It's still our top contributor to the top line. So it's the one that creates the most dollars for us. So the volume is still strong. And from the NV, we said, okay, the downside of the NV reel is that you have a hub that needs to be swapped at the store to turn it from left hand to right hand. Can we make something that, you, that the user could change? And that's when we came up with uh, the remodeling of the CCFX2. In the meantime, we had made the FWX reel, which turned into the X reel, which was a completely different design. It was not a drawbar. Uh, it had a tiny little drag, plenty for trout fishing. But after years of doing it, people were complaining that it didn't lock down the drag. And so we had to give them something better. But so today what we have, the oldest reel is the NV. It's the top of the line reel. It's got all the bells and whistles. It's the most expensive to make. It's got the most intricate cutouts. And as we've been going along, we take the best that we have and we look at materials that are available to us and we try to incorporate them into new designs. And it's not just about designing the coolest reel. It's also about, okay, if I want to improve the drag system on the FWX, for example, I need to add money to that. But to keep that price point at 295 for a five weight, I need to cut costs somewhere else. So the two biggest costs were machining time and assembly time. So we re-engineered the frame, how to cut it, how to effectively cut it. So instead of making a frame in five steps, we are now making 24 frames in two steps 
assembly time has been cut down where we can make three X-rails for every one FWX we assembled. But we were able to take all those savings and put them into a much superior drag system. And so that's sort of been our evolution. But then looking at the line that we have now, the X-reel is our entry-level reel, which I think is phenomenal. I think it outperforms any reel in the bigger sizes. And I almost like it better than the NV, even in, in like a 6.7, uh, because it's so light. It's 4.7 ounces. But then you go up from there, and you have the CCFX2, which turned into, which was essentially the evolution of the CCF with an assembly system that was a lot easier to assemble as well. We could make two for in the time that it took us to make one of the CCFs, and we didn't have to send it out to dealers or send out spare hubs to dealers that cost a lot of money to switch from left to right. The user can do it. The dealer can do it with what they have. Mm -hmm. And so that's that. And then we go to the NVG. We came out with, so from the very get-go, the Kaufman guys were big spade guys. Northwest was and still is one of our strongest territories. And big spade following out there. And the CCF-12 was uh, still has a great uh, appeal uh, nowadays. I mean, this is, what, 17 years later, uh, they're still fishing it on these 12-and-a-half-foot and 13-and-a-half-foot spay rods. And so we were catering to the spay market, and out come these really thin running lines that are now slipping out of the frame. And I'm like, man, what can we do to this? We cannot close the tolerance between the spool and the frame because then if you take it saltwater fishing, you start torquing the handle on a big fish, you're going to scrape the spool against the frame. So we came up with the space spool. That was the alternative to making a whole different reel for spay. But all they had to do was they could use their reel that they were saltwater fishing with a couple times a year and get a spare spool for it and make it a spay reel. Or buy the spay reel and buy a saltwater spool for it because they go once a year to go uh, saltwater fishing. And it's a $200 problem to an $800 reel, right? Hmm, yeah. So it really solved, you know, I've, I mean... The whole spay fishing deal is, is a very cult fishing crowd, and they're still in love with the full frame. And just yesterday I had a call from my Scandinavian distributor, and they said, when are you going to make a full frame reel? And I assembled one, and I'm shipping one out to them this week that we made as a test run. And we never made it because that's going back to making your granddad's reel, Right? Grandpa fished, and I have my grandfather's salmon reels that are full-frame reels, and that's the only thing that will stop a thin running line from slipping out unless you make a spool that's specific just for that. And we figured that out. And my argument to him was, hey, man, I don't want to go back in time. I want to go forward. And if you think our space stuff needs improvement, then talk to me and we'll build it because... I believe in, in making things better. And that's where, like, the GTX comes in. GTX is a $1,300 reel. It's brand new. My crew wants to kill me. My dealers want to kill me. We've made them. <laughs> uh, we've, shipped, we've shipped a bunch. COVID sort of put a break on manufacturing more, but 
I remember my, my crew coming out to me and going, Kristen, stop it. Stop changing what you want on the GTX because every day you come up with new ideas. And the frustrating part is having to stop and saying, okay, it's ready to go. Because every other day you think of some little change you could make to it, but you have to make a business decision at some point and say, okay, stop. Let's start producing this, right? And that's where the new models come in. You say, okay, all these ideas i got to put down on paper, put them on file, and when the next reel comes, i got to pull them all out and see, what, you know, 90% of them are junk, and let's take the 10% that were great ideas. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and that, um, and just to, to kind of clear up for people, because I'm looking at uh, on your website, you know, your yep. uh, un under reels, we've got the, the tech, the, the specs and pricing, I should say, page. And this yep. is a great chart for people to go look at. And so, like, the X series goes from uh, three weight up to nine. The CCFX2 goes, what, from six to 12 weight. And then the NV goes from the very bottom to the very top covers everything in NV line. Yeah. And then the GTX is really at the, the larger 10, 11, 12. It's a single reel, yes. Yeah. It's a family in its own. Yeah. And it's just yeah. because I said, man, let's build something that no one's built mm -hmm. and use everything premium we can, everything we could think of that would make it better. And it's really an amazing reel. Yeah. we I got mean, a couple questions. Yeah. We got a couple questions from on the internet here. Uh, Bill Thomas in Charlotte uh, wrote in. He says, uh, "What is the smallest reel you make? I've seen the large saltwater, uh, but have not seen the smaller freshwater reels." So the smallest is the XS. It's a three and a half inch reel. It um, it weighs near nothing. It's four point two ounces, I think. Uh, I don't know the chart in front of me, but it's a two three. As far as line capacity goes, it, it could probably go to a four with almost zero backing if you're fishing tiny water. But I believe in bigger reels. And at three and a half inches, um, that's a pretty big reel. Mm -hmm. um, and so at three and a quarter, sorry, right? Okay. And so it looks great on a nine-foot three-weight. It'll look really weird. On a on a seven foot three or two, hmm. but try it because bigger is better. And the explanation here, especially on the tiniest reels, if you've got your two and a half inch three weight reel from back in the eighties that Bill Ballin, Ballin's, uh built for you, or somebody that made tiny reels. That reel, when you strip that line off, it is a pigtail, the whole thing. From the beginning to the end, it's all curled up, and you spend half your day stretching it. When you take it to a three-and-a-quarter-inch reel, it comes out straight. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the main advantages on a tiny rod. You don't need the line pickup because you're really not picking up line. Right. But, yeah. but the line, the memory of the line is not as compromised as yeah. when you have a tiny, tiny reel. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, another question from the Internet here, Treg Owings in uh, Moscow, Idaho, says, what reel would you re recommend for a four-weight trout spay rod? I would go with the XL. 
and that's our four inch six seven weight and I'm figuring he's probably fishing a 10 footer I don't think he's fishing 11 and it should balance out well and that's one more thing with the spay guys when they've got you know longer rods and it gets heavy a light reel might not be the the right reel to have and our reels have enough backing room where you could put a couple turns of a heavy sinking line like a T18 or a T14 and just roll it roll it over the base uh, before you put the backing on and it gives you that balance and uh, but I think the XL is going to be the perfect ticket and it's four inches it's a huge arbor it'll look good on that long rod and it's not going to make you line coil okay okay good let's see if we've got anything else there quickly um oh uh Treg says his rod's an 11.3 oh yeah xl yeah okay all day long there you go, Treg. yeah okay um what are some of the because i think this is something that you take pride in some of the details of your reels that a consumer might not notice but are important to the reels appearance and or functionality so follow so that little do, detail stuff you do yeah so i'll tell you something if you look at all of our reels if you took an nvg89 spool for example that we made in the, the year it came out, which was the NVGs came out in 2000 and let me think here, 12. The NVG, you take our 2012 NVG 8.9 and you compare it to the uh, 2020 NVG 8.9. If you look closely, you will see differences. And we always, we make a lot of changes as we go. And we forget about them. But you could take an NVG spool from, or the regular NV spool that came out in 06, and you can put it on your, on the same frame size that's made in 2020, and it's going to fit perfectly, and you can go fish it. But, so why I mention this is we're always changing little things, and a lot of people might not notice them, and there's a lot of stuff that we incorporate in design that people don't notice. I mean, like we built the hook keeper. The hook keeper is a little plug that you screw into the side of your reel foot, and uh, you hook your fly on it. Most fly rods don't even have the little loop to hook the fly on anymore. And we say, okay, let's do that. Or you loop your backing around it so it doesn't slip off the back of the reel or, or into the spool when it's thin, thin tippet. So, you know, all these little creative ideas that come up, if you look at the CCFX2, and this is one of the most easily seen little details that we do, when you tighten the drag, so the NV reels have grooves that are cut into the knurling to make edges that are easier to grip. So when we knurl a reel, you put the texture on the outside of the drag knob, so if you've got wet or cold fingers, you can still grab it. But if you cut a groove into it, you get another extra edge that you can grab onto. And if you put multiple grooves, it gets grippier. Well, on the CCFX2, instead of just doing three or four rings of grooves, we made it like a screw pattern. So it goes in and spirals out. And so when you're tightening the drag, that spiral 
you can see it moving into the frame. It's not moving into the frame. It's just visually, because you're turning a spiral, it looks like the drag knob is moving in, which means you're tightening. And when you back it off, it moves out, and it means you're loosening. But it's just a little visual detail that yeah. we really don't we don't market it, but it's just they're cool little gimmicks that we have. And you can there's so many different places, like the little vent holes on the backing that we had on the NV when we first brought them out. I said, man, let's put a V on this in the bottom of the backing to not make it flat. And my brother said, no, you know, it's going to create a hole here. It's going to break through here. And I said, well, there's a hole through the side, and then we'll see the backing. That might look cool. And we put it on there. We said, man, that looks cool. And then we said, hold on. It's also going to get let air in and let water out, which means it's going to dry faster. And then we started studying that, which we used on the NVG spool, and that's all perforated underneath. The backing looks like it floats from the side, but it also lets the backing dry, and when you hose it down, you're washing salt, if you're using salt water, right through it. It's going in from the top, from the outside of the spool, and then you're washing it through instead of staying in the core in, in a solid bottom, right? Yeah, yeah. There's, there's so many little details. Well, and you also have a bunch of ways that uh, a customer can customize their, their reel for themselves, too, engraving, that kind of stuff. I think that stuff so, is So back to the flat bills before they were as popular as now, when I started, MTV's Pimp My Ride was a big hit. It was guys bringing in a beater car, and God, I think his name was Limp Biscuit. And some other guys would pimp out the car. They'd put Super Rims, Nintendo stations in the back, uh, speakers, TVs, leather everywhere. I mean, they would pimp out this beater car into something that everybody in their between their 20s and 30s would want or younger. And I said, man, I wish we could have something where we could pimp our reel. In the early days, it was not feasible for us. We didn't have the volume to be able to control pricing from our suppliers or demand pricing because of volume, right? Uh, we didn't have um, the money to build inventory to stock color parts and pieces. But as we grew, we implemented it. And what's funny is we just started with frames and spools. And we would not separate a frame for a spool. But unfortunately, the anodizers always mess up stuff, and so we'd lose a spool. And we'd, uh, and we'd be stuck with a frame, and nobody would buy a blue frame with a black spool. And I don't know, it was probably like eight or so years ago when Jesus said, hey, man, uh, I'm going to put some of these things together after work today. And I said, whatever you want to do, because we had some odds and ends that we would actually recycle. If we had a spare spool, we'd just let it go. And he put together, I don't remember what color it was. I should probably look back and see what it was. And he posted, it was a mix of mix and match of parts that looked like puke to me at the time. And he posted it on Instagram. And the next morning, the phones were ringing off the hook. We had a dozen dealers calling saying they wanted the reel that we posted on Instagram. <laughs> And so suddenly we looked at the color shelf, and somebody would call and say, hey, I want a red spool. And typically we would have said, you can't have the red spool because it's 
I don't have a spare one. It's attached to the frame, and I can't sell it by itself because then I have to throw away a frame. We said, sure, take that spool off that frame. We'll figure out another match for that frame. And it evolved into the, the custom reel builder that's just a, been a, a, you know, a super slam dunk. And wrongly so, we get credited for inventing the whole colored reel stuff. When I know Steve Abel started doing these funky colors back in the 80s, mm -hmm. but uh, but we're perceived as the guys that that do that. And and the fun thing with the colors is, I'll go to a trade show, a consumer trade show, and the first thing I get are five big guys. This is in New Jersey, so these guys are, I mean, big square guys coming with leather jackets, walk up to the booth. First thing they do is point at that purple reel at the back, and they go, who would fish that? What kind of man would fish that color reel? <laughs> and I'd say, well, what color reel would you fish? And he goes, blue. And I go, well, that's blue is our number one selling color because it's a safe <laughs> color. <laughs> yeah, <that's> but <laughs> if you're not afraid, purple is our second most selling color. And by the end of... Three minutes, the guy goes, I think I'm going to get that purple reel. <laughs> because the five guys all agreed, it's actually pretty cool. Yeah. And I yeah. tell him, you own a pink shirt, right? You own a pink shirt. They're like, yeah. But it's not purple. I'm like, well, hey. And I tell you, if I lay claim to anything, it's making a purple reel cool to fish. <laughs> yeah. And I, yeah. I remember telling a fishing guide, uh, Dino, uh, Captain Dino, he runs a, a charter business out of uh, Jupiter now, but he he was up in Pulaska. He loves to fish up in Pulaska to go steelheading up there. And he said, hey, Kristen, I want another custom color, blue Envy. Uh, and I said, no, the only way you're going to get one is if you get a purple one. He said, there's no way you're going to see me with a purple reel. I will never fish that thing. And he's actually from New York, and he was a big Italian guy. And he just said, there's no way. And I said, well, here's the deal. You're going to take a purple reel with you. And if you don't like it, I'll swap it for a blue one when you come back from your trip. And he called me up from the river on the first day. And he goes, Kristen, I've had four people walk up to me, wade out to me, to ask me what reel I'm fishing. It is so cool. There you go. And huh? that real man fish yeah. purple reels. <laughs> hey, hey, I tell you, and, and, and really now it's amazing. The colors that are out there, I just, I'm just baffled. And we still find new combinations, like people order stuff, and we go, wow, that's cool. Well, that's, you know, and that's interesting that you give an example from Alaska because, you know, you go down to the Caribbean and any color goes. I mean, you can paint yeah, your house yeah. any color, you can paint your boat any color. I mean, all yeah. bright colors are cool, you know. But the further north you get, the drabber it gets, it seems like. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, I'm glad to hear purple reels in Alaska work. <laughs> yeah. That's funny. Yeah, yeah. Hey, we got a couple more questions I want to run through here, but yep. running out of time. Um, uh, Phil McCartney in Kentucky uh, he says, I viewed a couple of very interesting uh, videos on how Nautilus reels are made. My father was a master tool and die maker for Honeywell for over 30 years, and we had an Atlas metal working lathe in our basement. Prior to computers entering the workplace, he worked in ten thousandths of an inch. Uh, please tell me about the background training and skills of the people who run the machines that create Nautilus reels. So 
my biggest pride is, is in the employees. So I've got uh, one guy who, when I started, uh, he joined us day one. And he was 65 at the time. He's 82 now. He just went on halftime this year. But he's a shop floor manager, and he barks out orders, and everybody jumps. And he makes spare parts for machines that have 20 different angles. It looks like a little metal C-clamp, and it's got 20 different angles and thicknesses all over it, and it's the most complicated thing to manufacture. And because the lead time from that thing is three months to get the spare, he goes on his manual lathe and mill and makes it. And these are machines from the 60s uh, that we have there that are still rock solid. They don't make them like they used to. And we've rebuilt one of them one time. The other one is still original. And he actually fixed some magnets to it that take it to tenths of a thousand. And you can see it. The guy will make precision. Uh, you know, he does most of our fixturing that we do where you're doing a one-off piece. He will run them by hand with all the angles and all the tens of thousands that need to be there. He'll make spare parts for machines. He'll make fixtures for tumbling machines. If one of the old machines break down, he makes a new this and that for it. It's amazing to see it. And then you look at our, you know, CNC operators. He can run a CNC machine as well. He doesn't because we keep him busy on, on his manual stuff. But... We have guys that studied it, and we have guys that started polishing reels with us that are now running machines that are making offsets. And it's, you know, it's all math. And these are people, some of them don't have high school degrees, but they've become experts. And, and I get ap job applications all the time with people that are certified for this and certified for that, degree in this and degree in that. And... Trade schools are phenomenal, but experience is king. And these guys work their way up, and they want to get their way up, and they're sitting there, and you're watching a guy that used to be a valet parker before he came in to polish reels for you, before he's started running parts for you, and now he's making tool changes and adjusting dimensions. That's, that's what's cool. And, and, yeah, we have some skilled guys that were trained, schooled, uh, you know, went to trade schools or college. But it's all about experience. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, we've got, uh, oh, Trey going says, crimson and gray would be cool. He's <laughs> going back to the colors. <laughs> you, you got go. him thinking. You got him thinking. <laughs> uh, um, Keep him coming. Uh, yeah, Phil, Phil uh, McCartney has asked a couple of questions online here, and also, um, but he's uh, maybe you can kind of combine a couple of these uh, uh, answers. But he asked about, um, you know, what fish do you test your saltwater drags against, <laughs> and uh, yeah. and what kind of maintenance do you recommend for saltwater reels to, you know, to resist the, you know, or what do you do with your reels to? resist corrosive effects of salt water? So, so I don't fish as much as, as, as most guides, but I can tell you that a lot of our guides never hose off their gear. They will hose the boat off, and the reels might be in the boat. They might have a neoprene sheath on them or not. And 
they will not take them off to hose them down. They hose down the boat. I don't do anything to my reels. There's really nothing you should do to your reel. If you want to, before you store the reel for six months, let's say you have one trip a year to the Caribbean. When you come home, wash it down on the running water. And the only key thing here, and that goes for any manufacturer's reel, is make sure the backing is dry. So once you've you know, washed it down under running water, don't put it under water, just wash it down. And that's where the, the G-spools and, and those vents under the, under the backing come in is that you get the wash through, the salt goes out. Because let's say you take that reel, put it in a pouch, store it in a closet, the very core of that backing is still wet and it's got salt. And that salt and that water starts to play ball. And they're just attacking all your reel. And, and in the end, you get ruined. If you can wash that salt through there, it's gone. And you just want to get rid of the humidity. So if you can, leave it on the dashboard of your car for a few days. Take the fly line off because you can ruin that with heat. Or just put it on your TV recorder or, or cable TV controller thing. Put it on there. It's a little hotter than normal, and it's going to dry out within a few days. But don't store it if it's not super, super dry. Yeah. And the first part of that question was, for, refresh me of that. Oh, he was wondering how you test uh, your saltwater reels if yes. you're using fish so to test your reels. 90% of my testing, when I have a new reel that I feel I need to test, a lot of times we don't really need to test reels. When we're building a reel, we already... We've learned to mimic what a fish will do. But ultimately, if it's a seven weight and up, uh, we'll go up to Jupiter here in Florida and put it on some false albacore, some big sharks. And, I mean, in a day you can catch 12 to 15 fish uh, easy. And they will put the wood to the reel. They will help you torque it, test the drag, see what wears, see what doesn't wear. In a day, you can do what you can do on a tarpon flat in three months. And so that's really what we've done is either send it up to guys up there, send it out with guides around the world. And, and I think the key thing here is not that some reels we don't test, but we constantly change. And like even the X-Reel, inside in the drag system, I think it was, you know, maybe eight months in, we changed the order of some things because in extreme situa situations, you could eat up uh, the Teflon washer in there. So we changed the order, order of things, and it, it, we, we didn't have that problem anymore. How many reels have come back to us with eating up Teflon washer? Three. And that's the whole thing. It's like we constantly change stuff, and ultimately, the best test of your reel is putting it out the market. Because if it's not right, it's going to bite you in the butt, and you've got to know how to fix it. And that goes back to the first set of reels we sold to Kaufman's. We shipped them 12 reels in the first shipment. It was our biggest shipment ever. And suddenly we realized that there was some loose screw that hadn't been tightened in one of our reels, and we, I called him up and I said, hey, man, 
I'm packing up 12 reels to ship them to you. You need to get me back those 12 reels. He goes, man, we sold 10 of them already. And I said, man, I think there might have been a loose screw in there. And he goes, well, we'll find out. And we never found out. Oh, well, that's good. Yeah, yeah. They didn't, the customer you know, feedback I, I said, is let's important. Call. Yeah. They said, they, I said, let's call the, the customers and just give them a new reel. We'll take the other ones back and no questions asked. And he said, no, man, let's not cast a doubt on it. If something happens, we'll swap it and that'll be good. And nothing ever happened. It was this one reel we had that had a little screw, and we sort of freaked out because it was the biggest order. Yeah. yeah. But yeah. I think ultimately the consumers are the ones that do the dumbest thing with the product. I do it with my laptop, with my phone, and I think we're the ultimate test. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, user, user uh, testing is always the best testing oh, yeah. uh, for <laughs> anything. Yeah, yeah, because people will do things you'd never, never expect. The strangest things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, good. Well, we better wrap this up. We're way over time, but it's been so much fun, Kristen. So hang with me a bit. We're going to give away a uh, one-year membership to the Fly Fishers International and one-year subscription to the Fly Fishing and Tying Journal and a uh, $25 gift certificate to um, Front Range Anglers in Boulder, Colorado. So hang tight with me a few more minutes, and uh, we'll finish things up. The Bristol Bay region of southwest Alaska is home to the largest runs of wild salmon on the planet and some of the best trophy rainbow trout fishing found anywhere. The Pebble Mine still remains a threat to the region, and two million acres of federal lands may also be at risk. The entire fly fishing industry has united in this epic conservation battle. Anglers from across the country are joining the fight. Be one of them. Visit savebristolbay.org forward slash Tell President Trump. Again, that's savebristolbay.org forward slash tell President Trump. And there you'll learn uh, how to get more involved and make a statement yourself to hopefully preserve this, this great fishery and, uh, and wildlife area. Just a quick reminder to everyone, before you leave the website tonight, please take a minute and give us your feedback about the show. You can find a link on our homepage in the section under tonight's show that says, what did you think of this show? Just click on the link. Leave your comments, and we'd really appreciate it. So now it's time to give away a few prizes. Uh, the winners for our drawings are randomly selected from the show's registration database. If you didn't register for tonight's show, make sure you do so for your next show, because we don't want you to miss out on your chance at the incredible prizes we have to offer. So if you are a lucky winner, we'll contact you after the show and provide you with information on how to receive your prize. So first, we'll be giving away a one-year membership to Fly Fishers International. Uh, to learn more about FFI, go to flyfishersinternational.org. And um, a great organization to support and be part of. It's international, as the name says. Saltwater, freshwater, doesn't matter. Uh, they cover everything. Uh, and our winner for that is going to be John Feinberg in Colorado. John Feinberg. So congratulations, John, on getting that uh, membership to Fly Fishers International. Congrats. Yeah, and um, now we'll give away a one-year subscription to the Fly Fishing and Tying Journal, which you can learn more about at amatobooks.com. Check them out. They've got all kinds of periodicals and books on fly fishing, so a great resource uh, to, to browse through. And our winner for that is going to be Bill Todd in Virginia, Bill Todd in Virginia. So, again, congrats, Bill. I'm sure you'll enjoy that, uh, that journal. And... Uh, Lots of fly tying to be done with that. And now we'll um, 
give away a $25 gift certificate to Front Range Anglers in Boulder, Colorado. And again, you can redeem that online or in-store. Come on out to Colorado and uh, check them out. They're a great uh, uh, shop in, in Boulder. And um, so our question, and you're going to answer this question in that uh, form on the home page of our website at askaboutflyfishing.com. Put in your answer plus uh, your name and your location, and, uh, and the first one that gets the right answer will be the winner of that gift certificate. So let me just clear that out here, make sure I got nothing in there. The question is, uh, I'll do a simple one tonight. Uh, what are the two fish that Kristen likes to fish for most when he goes fishing? Two fish. One's freshwater, one's, one's a saltwater fish. So tell me that. So Kristen, it takes him a moment to hear because there's a slight delay in the broadcast. And, uh, and then uh, uh, these guys, uh, you know, they, they type about as fast as they tie their flies on. So we've got to wait a few minutes. <laughs> <laughs> the reading glasses need to be pulled out. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, get the I reading need glasses them. on. Gosh. Oh, man. I used to, I used to bug, you know, uh, kind of kid my dad about that when he was like yeah, my age yeah. now, <laughs> and now yeah. I'm there struggling, especially low light. You know, um, it's terrible. Yeah, <laughs> it's terrible. It's right, and there's there's no really good way to to solve it either. You have to have like three pairs of glasses on you or something. Yeah, yeah. You know, and and then then you lose them and you don't know where you put them, and it's it's a it's a whole whole dilemma. dilemma. Um, Let's see here. Oops, something, my screen just blanked out. Hold on a second here. Let's see if we've got a winner yet. And hold on, hold on. So we've got, yeah, we've got um, Elizabeth uh, McMillan McCartney in California, trout and bonefish. Should we give her that? Super. Yeah, more specifically brown trout and bonefish, but uh, but that's what he loves to fish for, and uh, rainbows beware, but browns are always uh, uh, invited, right? <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so, uh, great. So, Elizabeth, um, uh, you'll need to, in that same form that you just um, sent me the answer in, uh, put in your address and your, uh, that's all I need, because I've already got your email address and your name, so just put in your uh, shipping address and uh, phone number and send that through, and then we'll get you uh, uh, that gift certificate to uh, Front Range Anglers. So thanks for paying attention and playing and joining us on the show tonight, Elizabeth, and congratulations. So um, Kristen, really a pleasure yep. to have you on this show. It's been long overdue. Uh, love talking to you and uh, lots of great information about novice, Thanks for uh, having me, for and, if, and if, if anyone has any questions, I'm available on the phone. You call the office anytime. The phone number's on our website, and uh, I am accessible, and everybody that works there is accessible, and all questions are valid. Okay, and it's nautilusreels.com, nautilusreels.com, yes, and you can contact them there on their website, or their phone number is listed there as well. And, uh, yeah, it's... Uh, Thanks again, Kristen. I know it's late out there, Thank but you. thanks for sticking with me. And uh, uh, make it a, a great year and uh, make lots of great reels. <laughs>
Thank you. Everybody stay safe out there. Yeah, yeah, thanks. Well, hopefully all of you have found the, the archive on our website. If you haven't, just look for the link under the top line of our menu. It says uh, Podcast Archive. In that, you'll find over 315 shows, I believe, now. Just search by any keyword, like Trout, Darpin, Madison River, whatever, and you're going to find something uh, about it, I'm sure. Great place to educate yourself, so check that out. Um, our next broadcast will be on August 5th, 7 p.m. Mountain, 9 p.m. Eastern Time, and on that show I'll interview Peter, uh, Dr. Peter Moyle, and our topic for the show will be fisheries conservation now and in the future. Peter was recognized by Fly Fisherman Magazine as the 2020 Conservationist of the Year for his lifetime of conservation work in California and, and other watersheds uh, throughout the West. And Peter's forward thinking and get-it-done attitude has saved and restored fisheries across California, including McLeod River, Putaw Creek, San Joaquin River, and the Klamath River. So listen in to find out how Peter identifies and works through the issues associated with saving and restoring these fine fisheries. We'd like to thank Fly Fishers International, Amato Books, Douglas Outdoors, Baja Fly Fishing, Front Range Anglers, and Watermaster for our show tonight. And uh, don't forget to visit our website at askaboutflyfishing.com. And make sure you signed up to receive our announcements so you don't miss out on any of our future broadcasts. Thanks for listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. We hope you enjoyed the show. That's it. Good night, everyone, and good fishing.